Are you itching for a career change, but struggling to figure out that next chapter? Do you love reading and the creative process? By now, you've probably heard us talk about book coaching, how much we love being coached, and how much I loved my coach training. Book coaches help writers bring their dreams to life through support, feedback, project management, and accountability at every step of the book writing and publishing process. Author Accelerator's Book Coach Certification Program teaches you the key editorial, project management, organizational, and people skills needed to launch your own thriving book coach business. So, to find out if book coaching is the right career for you, Author Accelerator is launching a new five-day challenge to help you envision your next chapter. In their $99 one-page book coaching business plan, you'll narrow down your business idea, your ideal client, your ideal service, and more. Enrollment opens May 15th and runs through the end of the month. So visit bookcoaches.com backslash podcasts and enter the code podcast at checkout to get 50% off the one-page book coaching business plan challenge, which makes it $49.50 because I can do math and that is a deal. So bookcoaches.com backslash podcasts. Check it out. How do I find a writer's group? That's a question we get asked a lot, and we always encourage writers to reach out in our Facebook group, or just boldly throw it out there anywhere else online where you're hanging out with writers and see what happens. You do not need to be trading pages to be a writing group. Serena and Jess and I almost never trade our work. What we trade are texts all day long, day in and day out. So you should look for the kind of support and camaraderie that you need. But before you do, you're going to want to listen to my conversation with Joni Cole, author of Toxic Feedback, Helping Writers Survive and Thrive, which is just freshly out in a revised version, which is why we're bringing this conversation back to you now. Her new version has half a dozen new chapters, including How to Overcome Imposter Syndrome and my personal fave, How to Catch Yourself When You're Resisting Feedback That You Really Need to Hear, along with another super important one, how to receive and offer feedback on particularly difficult or delicate story material. It is a fun read, and I do recommend it. But, of course, you should listen on for my interview with Joni. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay! Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone. I don't remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. Writing, the podcast about writing all the things, short things, long things, fiction, non-fiction, pitches, proposals. This is, as I say, nearly every week, the podcast about sitting down and getting your work done. And I am super excited to welcome you to this episode. You're about to hear my interview with Joni Cole. She is the founder of the Writer Center, which is our local version of Grub Street, um, and an amazing place to find writers groups and other resources, both here and in person and online. She is also the author of several books about writing, including Toxic Feedback, Helping Writers Survive and Thrive, and Good Naked. Reflections on how to write more, write better, and be happier. And who doesn't want to do that? Um, Joni and I talk about starting writing groups, running them, keeping it positive, and making sure you don't lose your own work in the process of helping others. But before we get into the interview, a little update on what your, your lovely hosts are up to. As I record this intro... It is November 1st, and I have finished my first day of National Novel Writing Month. I hit my 16... No, I'm sorry. My goal is 1,725 words a day, because I know I'm not going to write on Thanksgiving. Um, And I hit it, but not after sort of uh, a morning of exciting stress and adventures. Serena is revising her Wake Up in Vegas Married book and wrestling with the fact that, yeah, this got easier after 35 books, and yet somehow it didn't. 
And Jess just texted us that she spent the morning signing and personalizing 174 books for a school district and was both thrilled to do it and hand cramping and shaking her hand and wrist out the entire time. So that's what we're up to this early bit of November. Let us know what you're up to by replying if you are a recipient of our email show notes or catching up with us in the Facebook group um, or, you know, any of those things. And just to toss it out there again, as we have almost every week, if you have a pressing writerly question that you think we might be able to answer on the podcast, please email us at amwriting at substack.com. Um, we can't promise to answer every email, but we do try, and we might answer the question on the podcast, or we might just invite you on the podcast for a coaching call to talk you through whatever is going on. All right, enjoy the interview with Joni Cole. Hey, Joni, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, KJ, for inviting me. <laughs> this is going to be really fun. Um uh, everybody, what we are going to focus on today, Joni and I, is, oh, oh, well, gosh, it's just all the things, but among all the things, we're going to talk about giving feedback and helping other writers and also uh, trying to apply those principles of helping other writers and giving constructive feedback to ourselves. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to ask Joni just a little bit of background questions. So um, I always like to hear a little history of you know, a lot of us sort of grew up as writers and always wanting to be a writer, but I'd love to hear how you came to putting words on paper that you thought could become a book or something publishable as an adult. Well, it took a lot of drafts, but... Um, no, no, no. I want to I hear, like, how'd you, how'd you start drafting? Yeah. I mean, were you one of those people that just journaled all your life, or, or did there yeah. come a time when you actually sat yourself down and were like, I'm going to try this? Yeah, well, true confessions. I've never kept a journal in my life. And I don't either. I am gifted all the time with these gorgeous journals, which are petrifying. I could never write a word in there, you know, in terms of just journaling. I do keep a lot of, you know, notes in my pocket and scribbles here and there. But, you know, I think way back when I was told I was a good writer. And so that never hurts. That's for sure. So I think I had that intrinsic sense that, oh, I could do this. But it was after college and, and well into my 20s, I went to a workshop in Minneapolis and it was at the Loft, which is really just this wonderful place that I think has been a model for a lot of community workshop formats. And I found my people and it was fun and I didn't know what I was doing. But again, I got some positive feedback in terms of I was entertaining and I really felt I had an instinct for providing feedback. And so those little stories led to more little stories and led to me um, when I moved here to the Upper Valley, which is where you and I both live, there was a little bit of a of a gap in terms of where do adults go to to kind of get together to write feed and give each other feedback. And so I started teaching and and being around so many writers inspired me to keep going. And so I really enjoy writing personal essays, particularly. But I also started really studying the craft of writing and studying writers themselves. And so I often do a lot of writing about writing. And so, you know, that inspires me. And then what I learn and teach others and get reinforced and learn back from my um, participants in my workshops have fed me to write a couple essay collections, and I'm working on a novel now. And so, you know, it's just being surrounded by people who are really trying, you know, and had the courage and the generosity to say, I, I just want to do this. It's scary, but I want to do this. That just so fed my writing life. And so, you know, I trickle out writing pretty consistently for the past 30 years or so. So there is so much to follow up on in there. Um, I just want to ask, do you do you have any memory of, of sort of what what led you to the loft in the first place? Well, you know, I was a trailing spouse for one thing. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do when I'm in Minneapolis? And so again, that little impulse that I had that I thought I could be, it wasn't so much I thought I could be a writer. It was that I thought I was a creative person. I always get these comments, oh, you're so funny. You know, oh, you're so clever. And here was this arts community open to the public. And um, the minute I went to one of those workshops, I just, I just fell in love. And then that's where I committed more to pen to the page. I love the feedback process. I love the way those workshops were held. You know, I love that they were so 
non-judgmental in that newbies were there, seasoned authors were there, we were all in it together. And so it was really, you know, boots on the ground, working writers, sharing drafts from that first, what the heck is this draft to, you know, the polished, polished, refined draft where we would mine edit and pick on things. And man, those were, those were my people. And so I just loved it. But yeah, I think it was that reinforcement that, that I'd always been told I was creative. And since I can't sing or paint, you know, and of course I think I'm a good dancer, but no one else does, but it kind of left by default the channel of writing. And I absolutely find it not always easy by any means, but the most rewarding outlet for me and my creativity. It's, it's truly one of the most fulfilling things that I've ever done in my life. Well, you were so fortunate to, um, to have that first experience be with a community that was generous and open and giving. I mean, I know that your, in fact, one of your earlier books is called Toxic Feedback because you're more than familiar with the fact that some of these writers groups um, are not warm and welcoming to new writers or experienced writers or really anyone that might be arguably more experienced at something or better than you, the, the uh, critiquer, are, which of course is everyone because it doesn't matter who we are. We always think everyone is you know, everyone's there. There's a certain mindset that everyone's a threat and, and, you know, everyone is scary and, and I must defend myself that really crawls into writers workshops. How do you think that the loft um, managed to maintain that positive environment? Well, you know, we had a lot of fun and that always helps. And I don't think anyone took themselves too seriously, but that group, like any group and the groups that you know, I subsequently took workshops with it at that same place. You know, there was a mix of people who were sometimes brutal, sometimes kind, sometimes just hovered in a corner and never shared, you, you know, sometimes just, oh my gosh, spot on in terms of really helping me. But I think that, you know, any group can be a productive group. It isn't so much the individuals, because at this point, I've taught hundreds and hundreds, thousands of writers and hundreds and hundreds of workshops. You can't say that everyone who walks over that threshold, you know, is non-toxic at every <laughs> moment of their life. But when we get together and when that dynamic is understood, how we can work together as a group, it just elevates the whole. And so any group, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one session or whether it's a writing group among peers or whether it's a workshop in an academic environment or a workshop in, say, a, a nonprofit social service organization, with the right set of guidelines, with a cognizance of what we're there for, any group can become a very productive, non-toxic group. Non-toxic isn't even the bar because I, I, need, I need to get something <laughs> out of Shouldn't that group. be an assumption? <laughs> yeah, it should be assumption, but we are so often misled in terms of when we go to a workshop, not only is the writer often terrified, and why wouldn't they be? I mean, we're sharing stuff that's either raw or personal, but often the feedback providers are anxious or nervous. And we think, well, we better say something smart and we better say something critical or we won't be helping at all, you know? And we're mm -hmm. so concerned with what we have to say that we're not paying as much attention to what that writer and that draft demands from us. And with a little bit of attentiveness to that kind of stuff, you're gonna get a great group. You might get some feedback you're not gonna use, some feedback from left field, some amazing spot on feedback. But, you know, it is our job as writers to put it through our own editorial mill. But what you will always get if people are paying attention to that dynamic is a positive experience, one that makes you want to go back and write. The highest compliments I've ever gotten are in some iteration of the comment, you know, I left that workshop and I could not wait to get back to the writing table. That's what feedback should do for you. That's what a workshop or a one-on-one -on -one exchange should do for you. And of course, the other thing we can talk about later, if it if it you know works, is there are so many forms of feedback, and we very often misconstrue it as being this is what's wrong with your writing, and here's how you need to fix it. That is just not, yeah, usually the form feedback takes. So even that has its place once in a while. So I I want to go in two different directions here. And one is that I really want to talk about that, the forms that feedback take, how you work with um, with the members of your groups to uh, encourage them to give useful feedback, to give what, what uh, we like to call good notes that are both um, 
you know, that are helpful yet honest. I totally, I want to do that, but I also want to talk about how you came to start the Writer Center because you run a Writer Center in White River Junction, Vermont, where there is a, there are a whole series of workshops. I taught there myself many years ago and maybe, maybe I could again. I hadn't even thought about it, but there's a lot going on at the Writer's Center, and I feel like you must have shown up in Vermont, looked around, and said, well, I can't find what I want, so I'm going to start it. Is that how it went? Yeah, you just nailed it, you know. And like I said, I do think I have a good ear for feedback and and structure, and, you know, and I love line editing, you know. So just the whole, you know, draft from the first to the last. I love that process. And so, yeah, when I got here... And, you know, I did end up getting a master's at Dartmouth, which is just a few minutes from my home and and sort of focused on creative writing. But frankly, that was one of my most toxic experiences. But I thought, you know what, I want that community oriented environment where where people like minded adults like me can come and give this a try or be very, very serious about it. We've had so many people who've gone on to publish, you know, their first, second, third books. So we mix it all together, but yeah, it was a need. And I thought, well, heck I need it. So I'm going to create it. And I remember I first taught, first I taught at a magazine where I was an editor in, you know, um, their offices where I was an editor for a while, but then I moved it to my house and this back room of my big, you know, old noisy house with my dog who, you know, kind of leaked in the middle of the circle because she had a little bit of a problem. My kids were playing (laughs) Uh, dice upstairs so you could hear it but I love the work we did there but I remember oh my gosh I often felt I was just one chapter of Janet Burroway's book writing fiction a guide to narrative craft I almost felt like I was just always one chapter ahead of the group because I think that's one of the best best craft books ever so I would read a chapter and then that night you know, or Thursday evening, I would go downstairs and act like I knew all this and had known it all along. But I just acquired this knowledge from Janet Burroway, who still puts out new editions of that book. And for a hardcore craft book, that book taught me so much. And now I've so internalized it. I basically say the same thing she said, but I don't remember who said it first. So (laughs) I take credit. But so yeah, I just taught myself more the craft of writing one week ahead every of every workshop. And now I feel like, you know, I read so widely in terms of craft. I learn so much from every participant. You know, that's the other beautiful thing about leading a writing workshop is, you know, the Yogi Baba Hari Das says you teach in order to learn. So what, yeah, when you first started with the workshops, um, were you also workshopping your own work? No. Well, I think maybe a few times I did, but Mm -hmm. first of all, these are workshops you pay for. Mm -hmm. And so here, am I going to take a space up at the table, (laughs) you know, and also facilitating a group is really, really vital to the success of a group. And it doesn't necessarily mean you need to be the best writer in the group, but you need to pay attention to the whole. And I found that when I was anxiously awaiting feedback on my own work, I was not quite able to pay attention to that dynamic, make sure that everyone has a voice, make sure that we don't go down some vortex of negative feedback or positive feedback, make sure that the writer, you know, is getting what I think she needs from the the vibe she's giving off or he's giving off. So I think facilitating a workshop, which is the key to a successful workshop, is it needs somebody just paying attention to the whole. You can rotate the responsibility. You can have somebody who is like a teacher like me. But that is often the difference between a free-for-all and a workshop where people leave and they want to go back to their writing table. So I, I rarely got feedback in that way. Did you also develop your own writing group? I have been in writing groups, and they really taught me and inspired several of the chapters in the books. One of them, we were all writing instructors and we were just terrible because all we cared about was looking smart, you know, and these are great people. These were my uh-huh. friends, you know, so it taught me so much again about who's in charge, who's paying attention this week. It can rotate again every week. So really, really great people, great writers knew their stuff, but oh, just a bunch of bossy pants all trying to prove we were the better writer or writing teacher. And I am completely included in that. And so, um, you know, it got a little awkward when the group disbanded and I'd run into some of these people because we kind of had to get our friendships back after that experience. But, you know, in all my years of teaching workshops, um, I just feel like 
the groups have such an intimacy and get really close. And, and I would say 99.9% of the time people leave with a very positive experience, you know, and some go on to, most of them go on to write and write and write and mm-hmm. some don't, but I still want to give them the same sense of, you know, your stories matter, you know, here's a little bit of craft that could help you to get where you want to go. So, so who, who do you tend to reach with these, with these classes? Oh, it's, it's all over the place. Certainly I get a lot of MFA refugees, mm-hmm. like, you know, well, they got their MFA, then they didn't write for 10 years, partly because of say a very brutal or harsh environment. Now I get also as many MFA refugees who so in this miss that environment and then, you know, didn't know there was a community out there. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they've loved their programs, but when you're out on your own, you're kind of in this desert. And so I get a lot of those. I get people who have across all realms in terms of professional experience, um, you know, so and and newbies. And then I get people working on their second book and they're stuck. You know, it's really across the board. And I really, really value a democratic workshop. There is no hierarchy. There is no you're the best writer. It's just where that draft is at. That's where we meet it, where you're at. That's where we meet it. And for the newbies, for example, the reinforcement or the instruction that I offer and some of the more seasoned writers offer, that's really helpful for the seasoned writers, a reminder of craft and that we have these tools that can help us to, you know, write better and and get unstuck. And, And then, of course, I think that the newbies and their fresh approach and the way they read almost the closest to way our readers will read, you know, not so much looking at craft, but just looking at I was lost I kind of skipped this section. They offer such good feedback to the seasoned writers. So it's a, it's a win, win, win. And it's a biggest win for me because I get to do it over and over and over again. When people first come into a workshop, how do you set the tone for the kind of community that you would like to help them form? Yeah, that's a great question. And that to me is the key because I, None of these workshops are lecture based. I mean, I do go on and on often when there's when there's a bit of craft, I want people to understand like what we mean by showing and the mm-hmm. aspects or narrative techniques that are within showing. Yeah, I'll lecture for 10 minutes, but it's always based on whatever's on the table right then. And so I don't start out by lecturing or even giving necessarily a set of rules, but it's exactly as you expressed it. It's you kind of set a tone. I come in kind of cheerful. You, you know, certainly appreciative of the generosity of people showing up and, you know, giving me their precious time, but also the courage that you have to get there. And, you know, I quickly sound in with some feedback, you know, that shows that magic or that mix of both extremely positive, supportive comments, but also there's a nugget there that you can mm-hmm. learn and use to write forward. So when you model that kind of behavior, it's not rocket science. And people quickly pick up on it and it becomes just this collective to the degree that if somebody did come in and say one of those obnoxious assholey things that sometimes we've heard workshops do, you know, like it just, you know, it just didn't, maybe, you know, maybe you're in the wrong place or maybe you should not be a writer, you know, they would look so ridiculous in a group like this because the expectation and the model is thoughtful feedback. You could be wrong, but you need to be thoughtful and you need to be appreciative of what the writer did get on the page. One, if there's any rule, we do look as much at what is working in a text. And that in a jumble of word associations, which some first drafts are, could be the lyricism of the language or alliteration or a phrase. You know, In other places, it could be entire scenes. And so we do really put as much attention on what is working because I actually think writers learn more from replicating what is working than hearing only about the gaps of what isn't working. You know, and that said though, if we get a piece that's been revised and revised and is almost there, you better believe we're going to redline it, you know, mm-hmm. because that's what the writer wants. They want feedback. They want that help. And at that point, they're probably so snowblind to the fact that they used the word twas 15 times, you know, in a manuscript, they would appreciate yeah. somebody pointing that out. It's clear to me that you moderate your feedback and encourage others to do the same according to where a person or a manuscript is in the process. Um, do you think that comes naturally or is it something you you talk about with your writers? Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that it's organic. I think some people are really good at not 
going on and on and on about, you know, there was this I liked and this I liked and this I liked and this, I you know, and, and then we're just like, okay, you know, we kind of lose all of us lose track. But I think most people are good at that. But also, again, when you're around a group that does have that, that self-created dynamic, where you don't step on each other, where you talk, but you allow other people to talk, where you um, make sure to point out something you really love to the degree you just have to read it aloud back to the writer. It kind of feeds on itself, that productive, positive dynamic. And so, um, again, I think it's a matter of really paying attention. And we all screw up. I screw up all the time and, you know, hog half the attention in the room, you know, because I'm going on or mis mismanage the time. I do that all the time, you know, but once in a while I'll wince when somebody says something. The difference though is it's not, it's often not coming from a place where they meant to be destructive. You know, it's just a slip, just like we mm -hmm. all make. I, I argue in um, toxic feedback. I don't think there's that many toxic people, at least outside of, you know, the last administration. And I think it's more we're not paying attention. Nobody wants in a writing workshop to be cruel or to be um, mean. Mm -hmm. you, you know, they just, we just don't pay attention, you know. And I've certainly said plenty of toxic things because I wasn't paying attention to that right. writer. Right now, let's just take a step back and talk about the mechanics of how you set up a workshop like this. How many people do you have? How many pages do they give in a week? You know, who gives feedback? How should you allocate the time when you're getting it right? I so love these questions because it's really making me kind of be meta and think about what we do, you know, about four, six times a week sometimes, you know, in, in these different workshops. Well, before I allowed eight people in per group, because I think a workshop should be really intimate. It's not lecture based. And I also feel like the more deadlines that people have, the more they're going to produce. Duh. Mm -hmm. And so we need a smaller group to do that. And, um, <laughs> you know, I flatter myself, oh, these people return year after year after year. But, you know, half the time they're there for the deadlines my writing workshops offer. You know? But yeah, so, so they're small. But when we went to Zoom, I was startled because now I keep the group smaller, five, because mm. I think it allows for more of an intimacy. We can see everybody on the screen and it allows everybody to share up to about four pages a week. And while at first that seems startlingly small to people, it is remarkable how much attention we can pay that not only serves that writer in those four pages, but every writer there. And the same thing, and, and the other benefit of that is often what's said about those four pages applies as they write forward. Right. We don't need to see even 15 pages and certainly don't need to see a whole manuscript, which sometimes can have the built-in challenge of then how do you really drill down? You can give really good general comments, but how can you really drill down? And so what I've seen develop over years and decades is scene by scene, four pages by four pages, writers really build the components of longer works, if that's what they're working on. And so when you learn how to write a scene over and over, because you're only allowed to submit four pages or so, and this is a time management issue, mm -hmm. you really learn the components and acquire the components that you need if you are working on something longer. And the other nice thing about that is um, because we drill down on these smaller sections, by the time they stop submitting that, because we often get them to submit it once or twice, they have a really solid piece unit, component, scene, chapter, whatever form it's taking for the project they're working on, or they have a, a really solid essay. So the time constraints force us to keep the page limit small because I really want everyone to submit every week. Mm -hmm. but I think it actually has an added value in a, in a kind of roundabout way. And of course, everybody gives feedback to everybody else. And when you give feedback to somebody, you learn more about your own writing in many ways than when you receive feedback. So if you're in one of these workshops, you are submitting four pages a week and reading uh, 16 pages a week. Right. Yeah. So the time uh, element in terms or is time suck in terms of outside of the workshop. It's not overbearing mm -hmm. when you're reading and reading thoughtfully because, you know, you have to give feedback to your peers. That is so serving your writing that week as well. And, you know, for some people, four pages a lot isn't the minimum, the, the maximum they can write. It's simply the, the maximum they can submit. But right. for some people, that's that's an accomplishment. And if you really do the math, 
four pages a week of something that's really well done adds up quickly to a regular length novel. And yet it's broken down in increments that are palpable, that are digestible for the writer. So it also helps to take away the overwhelm of I'm working on my novel. I'm working on my memoir, you know? No, you just got, you know, one scene, four pages, whatever. Is that how you separate people or do you mix up genres? I don't separate people. You know, I, again, experimented and I found it worked. The more we democratize this, there's no hierarchy in genres. So we'll see. Um, so what you'd have a novelist and an essayist and a memoirist all in the same group Absolutely. And I do feel like the craft that is required of novels, scenic writing, showing, you you know, the narrative arc is directly applicable to memoirists and personal essayists. And so it benefits us all to see that the ratio of showing and telling is very different in nonfiction, Mm -hmm. narrative nonfiction than fiction, but, and, and sometimes it's not, but so I didn't even see the need to make that distinction. And so I love to mix it up and, and I think it makes it more interesting, but still really productive. And just to switch gears a tiny bit again, uh, how do you balance the time that you spend on creating these workshops and running the Writer Center with your own writing? Ah. <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> no, come on, you do. Um, well, you know, I think anytime I have time constraints within a reasonable degree, it benefits my writing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I have too much vast open-ended time, then I just putter it away, you know? Yep. Also, these workshops make me want to write. My stuff isn't on the table, but they just do. Mm-hmm. Particularly when I see, no, I was going to say, particularly when I see the newbie writers and they got the guts to go out there and put this stuff on. Never been in a workshop, never had feedback you know, no validation of what they're saying is worthy or interesting coming into the room thinking it's not, which is one of the big myths, you know, that a lot of writers or aspiring authors have. If they can do this, then who am I, you know, to kind of give in and watch Netflix at 10 in the morning, you know? And so it really does inspire me to kind of have the same level of integrity and, and get to the table and write. So it, it does, it does help a lot. And um, yeah, so I, I know how busy you are and I'm busy, but it, it feeds my writing. It absolutely mm-hmm. does. Do you split up your days? I like, sort of, do you have a, a plan? This is the time I'm going to put into, I'm assuming that you read all the submissions as so. Oh gosh. Yeah. Of course. Um, so you're reading 20 pages a week per group. And how many groups do you, might you be running at a time? Probably sometimes six or an hour and a half each. Again, mm-hmm. you know, they move swiftly. Um, one thing, I think that would have been way too much a decade ago or so, but, you know, because I am so practiced at this, I can really see quickly structure in particular, but even mm-hmm. line edits, you can just see them quickly, you know, and, um, and kind of see where the writer is at and where the draft is at and what would benefit them there. But on top of that, sometimes I come in and I have some thoughts, but the other workshop members they do the heavy lifting, not because I intended it, but because they're they're finding things I never saw or mm-hmm. saying things that just, oh my gosh, that's so right. And so that's why I love workshops. And, you know, I have a lot of one-on-one clients, but I think you get a much better value with an intimate, well-run workshop because you get a diverse, a small, you don't need a ton of feedback, but you get a small, diverse array of perspectives. And even the con contradictory ones, I think absolutely serve the writer. In fact, sometimes to the most degree, because you're getting two opposing points of view about something you've written and it forces you to kind of re-see it and think it through in your own editorial, through your own editorial lens. And I mean, that's the way you should mill everything. You know, all Mm -hmm. feedback should go through your own editorial lens, but I think it's particularly interesting when you get two opposing points of view and that helps. Even when I've gotten feedback in the moment that I thought, no way in hell, you know, this is related to my own work. You right, know? right. I, under, I understood. That has often been the most effective feedback. I have one particular <laughs> reader and he, everything he says, is like, no way. But for some reason, and I don't usually change it, but for some reason, it informs my process so clearly. 
And I want to add too, though, then when he's saying things I don't agree with, that does not mean he's saying things brutally mm-hmm. or, you, you know, or, or didactically. It's simply his opinion. But so I find feedback that I don't agree with is as valuable as the feedback I do, because it hones my own editorial instincts. And when you get that book out there in the world, you better have been tested before then. And so if I do end up keeping something, knowing somebody I respect doesn't like it or think it was the wrong word or the wrong scene, I'm ready because I tested it, you know, and who else can you test it against except your own, you know, instincts in the end. So it's been a real theme on the podcast lately that, you know, sometimes we take uh, you know, an editor or a beta reader or something that, that um, they may know something is wrong, but they may not know how you can fix it. And so to uh, learn to recognize that if someone is saying, you know, this scene seems to me it shouldn't take place in a coffee shop or whatever, learning to go, okay, I'm not worried about, there's something about this scene that, that, is bothering this reader. And, you know, if it's one reader, maybe you could put it aside, but it's always worth pausing and going, well, what, you know, maybe it's not the coffee shop. Maybe it's, you know, that uh, he got there first and she uh, came in second. And so she wasn't waiting for him and it just feels wrong. You, You know, so it's recognizing the feedback is useful, even if you don't take the actual advice that is sometimes included with it. I think that was a perfect demonstration of the feedback, a positive, productive feedback process. You get an opinion, a thoughtful opinion, well-intended, and you think it through and it taps into something and it makes you think some more. It informs and freshens your own creative process. And that's why you don't necessarily fix it to do what they say. You don't try to please everyone in the room. Right. And yet it it adds just a little bit of a, a, it sheds new light on your work in a way that kind of can get you past whatever, you know, whatever hump is there that you're stuck in. So, and if you keep hearing the same thing, then, you know, maybe you think about it a little bit differently, but, or or maybe it informs the next thing you write. That's also often true. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It might not be right for that story, but it probably will, will apply at some point down the road. So yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to describe that process that you just offered. Well, I think this has been incredibly useful um, in terms of uh, providing feedback and thinking about feedback and thinking about workshopping. So thank you. That this, this has been great. I'd love to just take a second and swift, switch gears and talk about good things we've been reading lately. Oh, okay. Well, um, I just finished Embassy Wife. Oh, I read that too. I thought That's that great. was really, really good. That is by a local writer, Katie Crouch, right? Yes. I don't know her personally, but I really enjoyed the book. Yeah, that was really good. And then I just read a history book that I loved by Joe Ellis, who's won the Pulitzer Prize. And he writes stories, you you know, they're very narrative. And so it's not Mm -hmm. just a hardcore history. And it's called American Dialogue. um, And it's about the four founding fathers and how their period relates to now. I thought that was great. I loved and just read the book Less by um, what's his name? Andrew. Oh, that boy, you're on your, you're on the Pulitzer prize thing, right? Yeah, I love that book. So I we never say book. mean things about books on the podcast unless we think they can take it. And in this case, I think I'm okay with saying I didn't like that book at all. So <laughs> let's discuss that. I, I think this is actually really interesting because that's a book about, uh, okay, correct me because I read it mo- a, wa- a long time ago and I didn't finish. It's a it's a guy who's a writer who goes to a writer's conference and is just un- is unhappy. He's stuck. Yeah, he's yeah. stuck. He just is just approaching a big one of those big birthdays. I think fifty, mm-hmm. you know. And his name is Les, which is an interesting name for a character. And um, I I can so understand why you and many others because I was surprised how many people didn't like this book but how it might not be someone's cup of tea because I find it very exhausting sometimes but not in this case when a character is just so stuck yeah he just refused to change and that's what I couldn't get past and it was the humor in that book that Mm -hmm. totally changed it for me but you know I can't remember there was a book I was just reading and I was like no just the character's just not I'm sick of her. She's just not applying herself. She's not trying. We don't, yeah, and we don't call out a book unless it's a, like a Pulitzer Prize winner. 
you know, or it's Dan Brown or, you know, <laughs> and I got nothing against Dan Brown. I didn't mean that in a, like a negative way, but you know, we, we do like to, you know, get a little debate going, but we don't do it over, you know, yeah. <laughs> we don't do it over regular people books because yeah. it's hard to write a book. Right. So we're not oh, going to do that. Yeah. I read but, a fascinating book just the other week um, uh, by a fellow you mentioned in one of your former podcasts, Matthew Salasis, mm-hmm. and it was craft in the yeah. real world. Yes. And so I actually interviewed him and um, that book is fascinating, especially because, you know, I teach workshops and uh-huh. most of, you know, you know, your audience, you know, is probably an aspiring author or a seasoned author. And to his lens at how he looks at craft was mind blowing. I still don't know what to do with it, but uh, that was a phenomenal book in terms of opening up our, our mind about the craft that we think we should apply to writing or that we should teach, you know, in, in terms of helping others. I thought that well, was, I'm particularly intrigued by the, your having read that because um, one of the things, and I took a lot of great stuff away from that book too, but uh, Jenny Nash and I had a, a conversation about it. And one of the things that we, that really struck us was that as much as he was trying to talk about workshopping books from a different perspective, he was also taking a very specific perspective on the writing workshop, which is that of the Ivy League, very, very uh, top of the game MFA style uh, workshop, which is not something I've ever per- participated in and not what you do. So, um, and that isn't, that's, those are just fancy or the, those are just different, right? If you manage to go to the Iowa Writers Workshop, you're going to have a different experience than you're going to have at the Loft or, or, or the Grub, Grub Street in Boston or the Writers Center. That's just, it's just different. So um, I guess, how did you think about trying to apply some of his suggestions outside of that um, kind of, uh, siloed Ivy Tower world, which has right. its own specific problems. Right. Well, yeah, his book does take a very academic approach, and much of his model and his ex- models and his experience are from Iowa. Or, but you know, it's funny. I've taught in MFA programs, and I've taught, you know, at Dartmouth, and I participated in those programs, and then now I teach in these community programs. And one thing I just have to say is the level of writing is no different. Yeah. It just isn't. I so I so thought, well, I'll go to this program, you know, or I'll be leading a workshop at, you know, some academic institution, you know, and oh boy, I better be on my A game because these people are going to eat me alive. And the level of writing, and in fact, sometimes those programs are different than the loft and the community because my community workshop, and that weirdly enough, those programs often are too good to teach craft in a way. And so I'll get these people that have been through MFA programs and still don't really know what the four narrative techniques are that allow you to really show and animate a scene and put a character on stage and round them about, round them out. You know, it's, it's interesting, but I did get a lot of applicable takeaways in that the main one was that he thinks that we view, and he's right, craft and what is good craft through a Western lens. Yeah, You know, we've all heard the adage in, in our realm, show, don't tell. Well, first of all, I already know, and you know, no, it's not show, don't tell. It's show and tell. But because yes. so many people we are We just so- did an entire podcast, Serena and Jess and I, about the difference, uh, about how it's not so much a difference between showing and telling, especially when it comes to inner dialogue, as it is um, uh, how you're letting the reader into the scene and that there needs to be a certain amount of telling, but there's a difference between, um, you know, uh, he felt excited and, uh, you know, he, and then you might say, well, no, I should show that. So, uh, you know, he waved his hands around. Well, that's not right either. Cause that's not letting you into the, their inside and, and the ins- letting you inside might be, you know, um, uh, I don't know. He he wondered if the Ferris wheel could possibly go any faster. I don't, that, that was a terrible, I'm not even great at inner dialogue. Anyway, we just did an entire podcast about that. So yeah, it's not showing versus telling, it's showing and telling. It's showing and telling. And so um, we are very heavy handed 
the when there's emotion and there's this great adage show emotion tell information that has helped me in the revision stage mm. i cannot tell you so when there's a scene with real emotional potency you want to show it you want to render it scenically using one of those four narrative techniques that let you do that direct action direct dialogue internal monologue or um which one did i forget or, or significant detail Oh, good. I was going to make you come back to those. So let's highlight those again. So direct action, direct dialogue. Internal monologue. Internal monologue. And significant detail. And significant detail. All right. So in case anyone caught that, but there are four techniques and went, wait, what are the four techniques? Because I, I totally did. Because um, it's just always interesting to hear how people... Uh, yeah. put those things I just together. love those because they, we can, so we write a scene and it's all expository and we can see there's a hot spot of emotion there and it needs to be rendered more scenically or show it. But how do we do that? Well, action, detail, dialogue, and internal monologue. We can pull those out of our back pocket and in the interweaving of those, depending on what the scene merits, you've just solved your problem versus just, well, show it a little, make me feel it more. So, you know, when you have an emotional moment, you show it. And when you have a informational or backstory type of thing, you can tell it. And it's a great way, a model to follow when you revise. But back to Matthew, mm -hmm. what's interesting is though, I want, when I read a book like yours, KJ, which I just so enjoyed, when there's an emotional moment and you know your two sisters and the chicken sisters are fighting, I want you to show that to me and scene, you know, show, yeah. show, show, you know, scene, 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 up that narrative arc. That's how I experience and recreate the emotional impact of an experience in a story. But Matthew is saying that in some cultures though, it's almost all expository, that the writing, the norm is expository. And another big, big uh, rift or, or difference, for example, for me is, for example, that narrative arc, which we're taught, and I still agree and, and feel like the best writing, there's a causality. Something happens which causes something else. It's mm -hmm. not just random scenes. You can't and just- The idea of the thought. hero with agency. That yes. was another thing that he was like, well, that's a cultural expectation that, you know, that a hero or heroine, uh, that a person would have agency and, and in some, some cultures, stories are about the things that happen to a person as opposed to the things that they, you know, there's just less of a belief that you're responsible for your own destiny. Yeah. And so that was mind blowing. I have taught many classes since I read that book and since I spoke to Matthew and I still am not doing anything differently, but I mm -hmm. do think I'm better off and the workshops are better off by at least being aware yeah. of that. And, and I'm certainly a different reader. I just read um, a really good book by an Asian American writer on Na, and she told her story and the story itself was about a, a teenager with schizophrenia just starting to develop systems, but, or symptoms, but she told that story in vignettes and they did not have a linearity to them. Mm -hmm. They mixed past, present and future to mirror the experience of schizophrenia. But I also think when I look through Matthew's lens, that that was also a presentation that had a cultural component too. Now it, it might not have been, but so my reading life is very different being aware mm -hmm. that this Western framework of what makes for effective prose is, is a framework, one framework not the only for it doesn't change the kind of stories I want to read it doesn't change the way I'm teaching necessarily I think it has made me more open to different structures but only if they're working <laughs> you know? yeah yeah I don't want to read a bunch of random scenes and someone tell me they well that's life well when I'm not reading life I want to read right. a narrative arc you know? right it I was, agree I thought the book was interesting yeah I think I read I definitely read differently and am more open to the possibility that the reason I'm wanting to put a book down is because it's not following that expect that expected arc. And then sort of taking a step back and going, well, okay, is there a reason that it's not following that expected arc? So if it is a story from a different culture or a story from a person with uh, strongly different experiences than mine, you know, if there are reasons to tell it that way, then I'm going to try to stick with it in a way that I didn't used to. But that does not mean that if you, um, you know, uh, give me a romance that doesn't present uh, the, you know, the narrative arc of change in which the people come to realize, you know, that, that uh, they need to put aside their resistance to whatever the love is. Or, or it, I, if you're not doing that and you've presumably, you know, handed me something that's supposed to be a romantic comedy, 
I'm not going to stay with you. But if this is literary fiction and or you know or or something else or a short story, then I I'm going to look at it differently than I used to, and that's what I gained from that book as well. Yeah, and there's just so many ways to engage a reader. So, you know, it doesn't have to be craft down. It has to be presented this way, or they won't be engaged. It can be multiple approaches, but nothing changes the fact that a book has to be constructed in a way that engages your audience, not everybody, right. the yeah. audience in which you're yeah. intending to write. And so I thought that was an illuminating, illuminating book. So, yeah. So I, I, know, I read so many books. Like I just, every, I think every guest on any show, especially writers live in fear of when somebody says, what are you reading? Because then it's like, it's like, it's like, right. Like, uh, uh, I don't know. We try to warn people because, and and it sounds like, hey, I forgot to warn you and I apologize, but because that, yeah, that totally happens. And it happens to me too. I end up sitting there going, I don't know, it's sitting on the table by my bed and it has a red cover and there's kind of like an orange facey thing on it. Maybe it's a butterfly. I don't know. I think it was about a woman. (laughs) It's like, and yeah, you just end up sounding, and there you are, you really like the book and it doesn't sound great. So um, yeah, we try to give people a little bit of warning. Well, I just brought out a couple of craft books that, so I am at the stage of trying to come up with um, my next, my next major project. And I have lots of ideas, but I'm working really hard as all listeners will know to, uh, to try to come up with an idea that has enough weight that I can carry it through an entire novel because I've definitely had the experience of sort of getting in the middle and being like, well, this is, you know, I've got to go back because I didn't, I didn't set this up right. And I don't, I, I think that experience may just be part of it. Um, I don't know that I'm gonna, but I'm hoping to improve a little. So I've been reading screenwriting books, which has really been super useful. And one of them that I have here is Writing the Romantic Comedy by Billy Marinit. Uh, that was one I hadn't read before. It's really about screenwriting. It's on its 20th anniversary edition. So, you know, it must be good enough that it's still around after 20 years. Um, It's really good. I'm actually not even thinking about writing a romantic comedy, but it's fun to look at the structure of the films that way. And looking at structure of films is in many ways much easier than looking at structure of novels. And um, it's just a different... Yeah, it's just a different way of approaching it. So I've been enjoying that. Yeah, Save the Cat is a great- Oh, I love Save the Cat. That's a great book for structure. And, you know, um, that's another thing is we are also different in our creative process. And so these books, particularly these books on structure that we're talking about now, I think they're just so useful. The writer, though, has to be aware of when they'll be useful. Mm-hmm. Because for some people- structure just is intimidating without some content, perhaps significant amount of content, which would then inform the structure. And then you can look at the structure books. Right. And then for other writers, they're very much linear thing. They can do a lot between their ears, you know, and so structure can be imposed early. And one of the things related to Good Naked that I wanted to make sure writers understood was there is not one way. I think too many times writers are are told you need to know what you want to write and how you're going to write it and the order in which you're going to write it before you can start writing. And I have had people come into my workshop and have had their idea for 10 years, but because they didn't know where it started or how to move it forward. And so I really went hardcore the other way in terms of you can simply write popcorn scenes. What if scenes? And when you get a critical mass, absolutely, you need to start marrying structure to two scenes. But if you don't know the structure, you can't know what you don't know. And that doesn't mean don't write. And so it really depends on what type of writer you are and when structure helps and when structure doesn't. And mm-hmm. and half the thing is when you write scenes, they often will tell you some structure or inform you. And, and then you impose a little bit of that structure. And then there's more scenes help you revise that structure or the structure helps you revise the scene. So it's the marriage of the two. But when you invite that kind of clinical top-down approach into your creative process so depends on the type of writer that right. you are. If you love it and if it if you feel it, you know, if if uh, if it feels like it works for you, then it probably works for you. And if it sounds like 
it'd be horrible, then it's probably something you're going to want to approach differently. Um, you know, I don't happen to want to write a full draft before imposing a structure next time, but it is entirely possible that that's what I have to do. I just don't know yet. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to play with things and I'm enjoying it, which I guess is, you know, an important piece of it. Well, that's the happier part in, you know, how to write more, write better and be happier is if you pay attention, if you don't know what the structure of your book is, then write another scene, mm-hmm. write the scene you're excited about. Don't write the scene that's next, which you might not even know, write the scene you think is going to be really cool. Or, you know, the scene where she finally leaves them, you know, write totally out of order, make something up because it will still inform content. And so there are so many ways that we can, if we pay attention to our creative process, make the experience just more joyful and imaginative and equally important productive because yes. writing anything is better than not writing, you know, and you don't have to wait for a full draft either for a writer such as yourself. And I think you are, you're very organized. You're a seasoned novelist. You don't have to have a whole draft to finally impose structure at some point, And the only way I know how to express it is sort of a critical mass of scenes. At some point you begin to get a sense of what that narrative arc might look like. And at that point, I think it really helps to do the first draft of an outline or whatever. It doesn't have to wait till you've got 500 scenes. Right. <laughs> and for other writers, it does take more like 20 scenes and, and all this before they can even begin to see, oh, I kind of get it. So it's what serves your creative process. Absolutely. And what a great moment this is to mention your latest book, which is called Good Naked. Uh, Write, let's see, write better, write happy. No, you do the subtitle for me. Sorry. Yeah. Well, the good thing is that you don't even have to say it in order because it works both ways. But the subtitle is Reflections on How to Write More, Write Better, and Be Happier. Write more, write better, be happier. Who doesn't want all three of those things? Well, you have to have all three. I'm not interested in people just writing more unless it's in their journal, which I hear is a very productive experience. You know, and I certainly want people to write better, but I want the triumvirate. I want them also to be happier. And so, and I would argue, frankly, that it actually works the other way around. When we are more satisfied with our creative process and that it's in sync with, you know, our editorial instincts and just who we are, when we are happier, and that's the sense I mean happier, we will write more and we will write better. So clearly when we write more and write better, we're happier. But I would argue that the myth of the suffering artist is just BS. And when we do find that sweet spot, and we're always having to modify it depending on the draft and the day, but we will actually be more productive when we are non-suffering artists. So <laughs> yes, um, so that's a big premise of the book. Agreed. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, everyone, if you want to suffer a little less, there's a book you can go out and, and look for. Well, we, that's, we should all suffer less. Um, (laughs) a lot less and a a lot less as little as we possibly can, please. Yeah. And it's not that writing isn't hard. I would be the last person to say it, but the creative process can be so joyful and inspiring and invoke our curiosity too. And there are really actionable ways to do this, almost like do this, not that ways to do that. And so pay attention to those. And I think we'll be writing a lot more and, and be easier to be around. (laughs) <laughs> well, I I love that. I love both of those things. Um, again, <laughs> thanks so much. This was super fun. As listeners, as you can tell, Joni and I could talk all day and well into the night, but it's time to uh, wrap it up and utter some of our usual closing words, which are, if you've got any questions about putting together a workshop or uh, writing better or Uh, suffering less or being happier, we would love to talk about it in the Facebook group, which is Am Writing Podcast on Facebook. You can also send us an email. If you get the weekly email of show notes, you can just reply to that, but you can also always email at amwriting at substack.com. If you'd like to get the weekly email of show notes, which usually is a little bit more and sometimes includes some bonuses, you can find us at amwritingpodcast.com. And I think that's all the usual asks. If you love the podcast, please find us and write us and review us. And also, please look for our guest, Joni Cole. Joni, where is the best place for people to find you? Uh, You can go to my website, JoniBCole.com. And it's J-O-N-I. 
that'll be in the show notes. And if you're local, I will include a link to the Writer Center as well. And actually, I guess now that we're in Zoom world, you don't even have to be local. No, I love it. We have people in Hawaii, Utah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I will pop a note in for that as well. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And as we say every week, keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. The Hashtag Am Writing podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work. If you've been listening to Jessica Leahy on hashtag amwriting at all, you know thought-provoking, actionable advice is her trademark. But have you taken your relationship to the next level and picked up her latest book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence? Peggy Orenstein called it a vital look into best practices parenting, with advice so smart that we can all benefit from her hard-won wisdom. Conceded. It does not make a good gift in most social situations. Be warned. But it does make a really helpful read, and it's out in paperback, so grab one today.